This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Three Days of the Giant of African Literature by Kerry Baraka. Approach. In October, I flew to Irvine to meet the novelist Ngoiwa Thiongo. I had spent the previous few weeks in cold and windy Iowa, and the sunshine and warmth of California was a bum. I sat in the backseat of my cab, quiet. Outside, huge American trucks thundered past, the tangy smell of the ocean in the air. Ngugi is a giant of African writing, and to a Kenyan writer like me, he looms especially large. Alongside writers such as Chinua, Chebe, and Wally Soinka, he was part of a literary scene that flourished in the 1950s and 60s, during the last years of colonialism on the continent. If Achebe was a prime mover who captured the deep feeling of displacement that colonization had wrecked, and Soinka, the really guileful intellectual who tried to make sense of the collision between African tradition and Western ideas of freedom, then Gugi was the unabashed militant. His writing was direct and cutting, his books a weapon, first against the colonial state, and later against the failures and corruptions of Kenya's post-independence ruling elite. I was six or seven the first time I read Ngugi, borrowing a children's book he'd written from my primary school's library. When I was ten, I came across a worn copy of The Trial of Dedan Kimathi, a play he co-wrote with Michele Gitae Mugo, on my grandfather's bookshelf. I read it again and again, captivated by the story of this leader of Kenya's independence struggle challenging the right of a colonial court to try him. Kimathi, who led the arms rebellion against the British, was executed in 1957. I studied Ngugi all through high school, as have generations of Kenyan students. My uncle, an academic, wrote a book about him, which I read as a teenager without properly understanding it. It was about a revolution Ngugi had led at the University of Nairobi in the late 60s, which had resulted in the university dropping English literature as a course of study and replacing it with one that positioned African literatures, oral and written, at the center. A decade later, Ngugi famously ceased writing his novels in English, instead doing all his creative work in the language he grew up speaking, Kikuyu. I fell in love with the idea of Ngugi as a fighter for African literature, and so, naturally, I decided to go to the University of Nairobi and majored in the very degree I had fought for. There, in the early 2010s, there were even more Ngugi novels and plays write papers on and sit exams on. So much of the 20th century seems contained within Ngugi's life. He was born just before the Second World War, when Kenya was still a British colony. He grew up under the shadow of a violent war for independence. He went to university in Uganda at a time of political and literary ferment across Africa, and he came of age as first Uganda in 1962, then Kenya, 1963, gained the independence. Over the years that followed, he saw with horror how people's pre-independence hopes were dashed. He was thrown in jail by the Kenyan government for his writing. After his release, he continued his writing and political activism, first in Kenya, then in exile in London, then, finally, in the US, where he has been a professor of literature for the past 30 years. 
he has become known not just as a novelist, but as a major postcolonial theorist, whose 1986 essay collection, Decolonizing the Mind, an attack on the hold of colonial languages, such as French and English, over former colonies, has become a set text for university students around the world. It is now an annual tradition to predict that Ngugi will finally receive this year's Nobel Prize for Literature, and then to lament that it hasn't happened. In short, approaching Ngugi's house in California, I felt nervous. My body a hotbed of cliches. Hands shaky, palms clammy, heart racing. The plan had been to write a profile, taking the measure of this legendary author, who was now 84, and entering the final phase of his life. Ngugi had suggested that I stay with him during my time in Irvine. His health was poor and he would be having surgery, he said. If I stayed, it would be easier to speak. It was a strange arrangement, not exactly befitting the journalistic objectivity I had hoped to cultivate. But I wanted as much time with him as possible. And besides, I reasoned, I'd keep things professional. And now here I was, pulling into his driveway, walking up to his red brick bungalow at the end of a cul-de-sac and ringing the bell. Getting the napkins. I had never met Ngugi before. I had seen him only once at the launch of a translation project in Nairobi in 2017, and now he was before me. At the event, he'd spoken about the Nobel and how, the previous year, in expectation of his winning the award, a group of journalists had camped outside his house from the very early morning. When he didn't win, he and his wife had given the journalists tea and comforted them. Today, he was lounging in a shirt, trousers, slippers, and a bathrobe. And I thought, well, what did you expect? coming to his house at 9 a.m. He bade me join him on the dining table where he was doing some work. Around us, everything was cream and gray. The walls, the couch, the chairs, the rug. It felt too clean, too stuck, devoid of personality. Before we talked, he said, he needed to know more about me, to know what my motivations were. He asked me to tell him about my writing. I talked about some articles I'd written and mentioned the novel I'd been working on for a few years. Like yours, it's about religion and politics, I said. I hoped with this to signal to him that he and I had similar interests in our fiction. He didn't respond to this. Instead, he asked if I was making enough for my writing to earn a living. I told him I was. That's good, he said. I was never able to do that. We were interrupted by the doorbell. Two people came in. They were there to do his cleaning, cooking, and shopping. In a few hours, he told me, a health aide would come to check his vitals. As Ngugi has grown older, his health has deteriorated. In 1995, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, which he survived, despite a grim medical focus that gave him three months to live. In December 2019, he underwent triple bypass heart surgery. Around the same period, he began to suffer from kidney failure, the same condition that killed one of his brothers. By the time I visited, he wasn't able to leave the house much, apart from his three dialysis appointments each week. I can't move now because of my illness. You have to come to me. I'm the king, he said. Violence has loomed over much of Ngugi's past. Yet now he lives a relatively genteel existence in American suburbia. Since 2002, he has been a professor of comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine, where his wife, Jerry, also works. He has nine children, six from his first marriage, and many grandchildren, and he talks to his family every day. His days are largely spent at home, reading, taking calls, and practicing his Spanish with his cooking and cleaning help. Every few months, he's awarded another prize. His phone rang, his assistant on the line. Ngugi was supposed to be doing a video call with a group of South African academics who wanted to discuss decolonization. Ngugi told her he had been unable to log in. But I have a young person here with me, he said. Baraka, he'll be able to help me. He handed me the phone. I got to work. 
the savvy young person helping an 84-year-old man figure out technology. I handed the laptop to Ngugi, who apologized to the academics for being late. As they talked, he asked me to get him some napkins. He wiped the sweat off his forehead. It's hot in California, he told the academics. I'm not sweating because of your questions. Normalize abnormality. After the call, I played Ngugi a song that had become a hit in Kenya in the months after the 2022 Kenyan general elections. The song, Vaida, is in Lunyore, a language neither Ngugi nor I speak. Yet pretty soon he was dancing to it, bopping his head, shifting his shoulders on his chair. In his day, he said, a song in an African language would not have become a national hit. During my time, if you heard an African song on the radio, you switched it off. What you were waiting for was Jimmy Rogers, he said. This was part of what he called the normalized abnormality of the post-colonial condition. The colonizers had their language taken from them and a foreign language put in its place. But what of Kenyan English or Nigerian English? I asked him, aren't these now local languages? He looked at me, aghast. It's like the enslaved being happy that there's a local version of enslavement, he said. English is not an African language. French is not. Spanish is not. Kenyan or Nigerian English is nonsense. That's an example of normalized abnormality. The colonizers trying to claim the colonizer's language is a sign of the success of enslavement. It's very embarrassing. He covered his eyes. I read someone saying he's writing in French so that he can subvert it. I thought, wait a minute, he is the one being subverted. As he spoke, I cringed. I wondered what Ngugi made of the fact that I wrote in English, or that I, a Kenyan writer, was here to profile him on assignment from a British newspaper. Was I also one of the enslaved? Lemuru, where it all begins. One morning a few years ago, I was hiking near the place where Ngui was born and grew up. Limuru, a town 18 miles away from Nairobi, Kenya's capital. The cold beat into my face, and the red soil crunched beneath my boots. Then my guide stopped. Look at all this, he said. This used to be my grandfather's land. Around us were rows of neatly manicured tea plants, stretching out into the distance waiting to be picked. I asked him if the family had tried to recover their land. Yes, he said, but state power had been so firmly against them that there was little they could do. Land has been the center of politics in Kenya since the end of the 19th century, when Britain established a protectorate here. Kenya was envisioned as a settler's frontier, where wealthy Europeans would hunt, farm, and live a gilded existence in wild Africa. In places such as Limuru, the land that the British had grabbed from African communities was used to grow tea and coffee, the cash crops that financed the administration of the colony. Ngugi was born in 1938 to a poor peasant family who belonged to Kenya's largest ethnic group, the Agikuyu, which today accounts for around 20% of Kenya's population. The family had been rendered destitute by these land grabs. And Ngugi's father descended into alcoholism and cruelty towards his wives and 24 children. It was Ngugi's mother, Wanjiku Wangugi, who encouraged the children to go to school. Even as the guerrilla war against the British raged around them from the 1940s onwards. The story of the Land and Freedom Army, better known by the derogatory name the British adopted for the group, the Mau Mau, is the foundation of much of Ngugi's most important work. Some of Ngugi's family were part of the LFA-led resistance in Limuru, while others collaborated with the British. Ngugi's older brother, Good Wallace, was a member. Another brother, Kabae, who had fought for the British in Myanmar during the Second World War, worked for the British against the LFA. Another brother, Tumbo, was a low-level police informant. Another brother, Gitogo, who was deaf, was fatally shot in the back by the British after he failed to respond to a command to halt during a police dragnet search for LFA fighters in Nemuru. 
One day, when Rui was a teenager, he and a friend were caught up in one of these police searches. In the daytime, local informants, their heads covered in white hoods with narrow isolates, would walk the street with British soldiers and squads comprised of home guards. A paramilitary force drawn from loyalist members of the Agikuyu community and led by junior colonial officers. This group would forcibly detain whoever they met, regardless of age. And the hooded informants would identify LFA members and sympathizers by a nod of the head. Ngugi's third novel, A Grain of Wheat, tells the story of a fictionalized informant. Ngugi and his friend were interrogated by the British officers, but eventually let go. As they walked away, not daring to look back, they heard gunshots and screams. Executions of people who had either been identified by the informants or refused to answer questions. A few months later, in 1955, after his first term at the Elite Boarding School Alliance, for which his family had screamed to pay tuition before he was awarded a scholarship, Ngugi returned to his home village and made a shocking discovery. I stop, put down the box, and look around me, he wrote in one of his memoirs. The hedge of ashy leaves that we planted looks the same, but beyond it our homestead is a rubble of burnt dry mud, splinters of wood and grass. My mother's hut and my brother's house on stilts have been raised to the ground. My home, from where I set out for Alliance three months ago, is no more. The British had destroyed the entire village and moved its inhabitants to a fortified new site where the activities of the inhabitants were closely monitored. It wasn't quite a prison camp because the inhabitants could live. But as Ngugi writes, for all practical purposes, the line between the prison, the concentration camp, and the village had been erased. At night, soldiers would pull villagers from their homes, interrogating and sometimes executing those who they believed supported the LFA. James and Ngugi Ngugi's career is often divided neatly into two parts. There's the first Ngugi, whose work as a published writer began at Makere University in Uganda in the late 1950s and continued until the end of the 60s. This Ngugi was called James Ngugi, sometimes J.T. Ngugi, and he wrote in English. His novels were political and critical of the colonial state, but subtly so. His protagonists grappled with the effects of colonialism but saw Western education as a tool that could be harnessed against the colonists. They weren't explicitly anti-Christian and dreamed of uniting local traditions with the best Western ideals. Ultimately, though, they failed. The second Ngugi emerged in the 70s. Ngugi dropped his English name and later rejected English as his primary literary language. Influenced by his reading of Marx and Franz Fanon, In these later works, he began to engage much more directly with the state, with class, with education, with every aspect of post-colonial life. Petals of Blood, published in 1977, attacked the new political elite in independent Kenya. It was the first of his works published as Nguiwa Thiongo and the last novel he wrote in English. In this novel, education is no longer a tool of liberation. It is the educated elite who betray the people. This was the first salvo from what the critic Nikhil Saval has described as the rageful mid-period Ngugi, who excoriates the Kenyan bourgeoisie with their golf clubs and other ersatz recreations of the colonial world they once abjured. James Ngugi had been obsessed with the art of writing. He had deliberated over style, about where to place a word, where to place a sentence. His writing hero was Joseph Conrad. The majesty and musicality of his well-structured sentences had so thrilled me as a young writer that I could cure about a writer's block simply by listening to the opening bars of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or reading the opening pages of Conrad's Nostromo, he later wrote. For Ngugi Wathiongo, style was secondary to his politics. His work attacked Western religion and education, language, and the betrayal of Kenya by the post-independence leadership. The first Ngugi wrote A Grain of Wheat, the second Ngugi revised it decades later. In one of the most important scenes of the novel, a group of LFA fighters attack and rape a British settler. This scene only exists in the first edition. Later, when Ngugi revised the text, the rape was removed and the LFA fighters came to seem purer in their actions. 
when I asked Ngugi why I had made this edit, he told me, there was never a single instance of any white person in Kenya being so raped. A historian pointed out this to me, and I did not want my novel to lie about Kenya's history of struggle. The language question. Ngugi's health aid came at around midday. I am squeamish about medical procedures and scared of needles, so I motioned to move away to give them space to do what they needed to do. But Ngugi signaled to me that I could stay. I registered with alarm that he intended to have me there with him as she did her work. She took out a syringe. Ngugi talked to me. I didn't hear what he said. My mind was frozen, struck at the horror of the syringe before me. I focused on the AIDS tattoo. An image on her arm of the Disney character stitch. After she had left and I was breathing more easily, Googie and I ate lunch together. His food a mushy, sortless mix of chicken and vegetables. This is what my body can handle now, he said. As he ate, we continued to talk. Our conversation less the interview that I'd planned than a discourse on colonialism, art and language. After the meal, he stood up from the dining table and walked to his bedroom. Ngugi, who has lost inches he could barely afford to lose to a stoop, walks haltingly in shuffling steps, with his hands folded behind his back. Sometimes he uses a walking stick, and on even rarer occasions, a walker. He seems to dress entirely in a collection of never-ending kitenge shirts with embroidered collars, which are easy to move or remove when he needs to change his dressing for the catheter in his belly. Ngugi has a slow, slightly croaky voice. He talks in a Gikuyu accent mixed with traces of the English one he picked up while living in England, often stressing the last word in a sentence. He peppers his sentences with, Oh my God, which he uses to register incredulity at opinions it takes to be absurd. He has a way of being dismissive without being rude, taking a strong stance without quite silencing you. He is quick to laugh, and when he laughs at something he finds ridiculous, he buries his face in his hands while shaking his head and saying, Oh my God. When he laughs at something he finds funny, he lifts his hand to the top of his head, bald except for great tufts of hair above his ears, but then winces, for that movement can be painful for him. Sometimes, the laugh can descend into a hacking cough, which exacerbates the pain of the incisions he has in his belly from multiple surgeries. We spent a few hours at that table. Ngugi Eva, the professor, sharing his thoughts on his favorite topics, language and class. I don't see the world through ethnicity or race, Ngugi told me at one point. Race can come into it, but as a consequence of class. He gave the example of the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas. He's as black as me, but every law he passes is against black people. But not the black middle class, the black working class. Outside, it turned dark, the harsh California sun fading into dusk. Ngugi tapped the table. In Gikuyu, this is Metha, he said. Where is this word from? Kiswahili, I said. And where do the Swahili borrow it from? I didn't know. From the Portuguese, Ngugi said. This is how languages work. They borrow from each other. Is it possible to have multiple first languages? I asked. I've been thinking of English, Kiswahili, Sheng, and Duluo as all being my first languages since I speak all of them with native fluency. I think, said Ngugi, you are lying to yourself. A man called Kerry. In Kenya, many people are trilingual, able to switch between the various languages different parts of identity call for. English and Swahili are the official languages, the languages of school, the law and politics, though English is used more often than Swahili, and dominates the education system. But there's also Sheng, which is an urban Creole mostly spoken by the youth, and which derives from Swahili, English, and the other languages in Kenya. I speak the three languages, but I also speak Doluo, which is the language of the community I am from, the Luo. 
Most African writers I know publish in colonial languages. But where two or more African writers are gathered, the conversation often veers to the question of whether it is possible to have a literary career writing in African languages. I told Ngugi about this despair and asked him if he'd had similar struggles. He had, but then he added that writing Gikuyu had given him a freedom he hadn't had early in his career. Ngugi was not the first person to write creatively in Gikuyu. What marks him out is his career trajectory, first garnering success in the West in English before reverting to an African language. After Petals of Blood, he has written all his novels first in Gikuyu, then later translated them into English. He told me he was in the process of translating his first two novels into Gikuyu. I mentioned that I'd recently seen his early books on an acquaintance's shelf, the books he had published as James Ngugi. Oh my God, I'm so ashamed, he said. But the advantage of that is that when I want to make fun of the colonized, I can make fun of James Ngugi and no one gets offended. Ngugi asked me what my English name was. Kerry, I said. Oh, you should definitely drop that, he said. In Kenya, most men named Kerry are named after an Englishman. Edward Kerry Francis, who is perhaps the most important figure in Kenyan colonial education. As it happens, I wasn't named after Kerry Francis, but my father once told me he regretted choosing the name because that was the inevitable assumption. Francis was a Cambridge professor of mathematics who, in 1928, abandoned his academic career to join a British missionary society that sent him to Kenya as a teacher. Francis taught first at Masindo School in Western Kenya, where he soon became headmaster. He believed his duty was to produce obedient and disciplined students who would uphold the system. One of his students was a boy called Oginga Odinga, who later returned to the school to teach maths. In his memoir, Odinga later described his clashes with his old teacher, who was now his boss. Among Francis's principles was that African students and teachers should have to wear shorts rather than trousers to remind them of their place in the colonial hierarchy. Odinga refused to follow Francis's edict, wearing suits on Sundays. African teaching staff were not allowed to have overnight visitors, and they were supposed to buy only third-class train tickets. When Odinga bought his family second-class tickets, Francis reprimanded him and Odinga quit. The two never spoke again. Odinga later became the first vice president of independent Kenya. In 1940, Francis was appointed at Master at Alliance High School, a position he held until 1962. Alliance, a boys' boarding school near Limuru, was designed to train the few Africans whom the British would allow to be part of their government. Ngugi arrived at the school age 17. At Alliance, the students were cushioned from the realities of British violence. In town, their uniforms protected them from police attention. As Ngugi writes in, in the house of the interpreter, boys were trained in the habit of being waited upon. Ngugi was the model Alliance student. The first piece of writing he ever published appears in the school's magazine in 1957. In the essay, J.T. Ngugi, from 3A, praised British education and expressed his gratitude for Christianity, the greatest civilizing influence, which had led the Gikuyu away from witchcraft. During school assemblies, he would sing God Save the Queen, while his brother was in the forest fighting the terror unleashed by her soldiers. The last time Gugi saw Kerry Francis was in 1964, a year after Kenya's independence. Ngugi, whose first novel had just been published, was giving a talk to students at a secondary school in Nairobi. There, sharing a desk with a student, was Francis. After retiring as principal of Alliance, he had taken a position at this school as an ordinary teacher. He listened to Ngugi speak and then asked questions along with the students. What advice could he give a person who dreamed of being a writer? How did the writer balance the demands of the imagination and those of the political moment? Ngugi smiled at the memory. This was part of the dilemma of Francis, he said. He was a contradictory figure, Ngugi said. He was committed to African education, but the point of that education was to produce boys who would never question the colonial system. He had bullied them at alliance. But then here he was, humbly seated with students, asking Ngugi genuine questions about his writing. In 1966, Francis died and was buried in the school grounds at Alliance High School. At his funeral, the pallbearers were all Alliance alumni who had become key political figures. 
nine of the 15 members of Kenya's first post-independence cabinet were former Alliance students. So, too, were the first attorney general, first central bank governor, and first police commissioner. I asked Ngugi if there's such a thing as a good colonialist. Oh my God, he said. There's no such thing. Colonialism is a system. It doesn't matter if you're carrying a gun or a Bible. You're still a colonialist. He laughed. Of course, I'd rather face the colonialist with the Bible than the one with the gun. But in the end, both the Bible carrier and the gun carrier are espousing the same thing. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to the Guardian Long Read. The Conference In 1959, Ngogi arrived in Uganda's capital, Kampala, to begin his studies in English at East Africa's most prestigious university, Makerere. To Ngugi, Kampala was a revelation. This was, as he puts it, his first encounter with a modern city dominated by black presence. At the time, it was the literary capital of East Africa, partly thanks to the university, which produced a generation of extraordinary writers. Alongside Ngugi were the distinguished critic Peter Nazareth, the Kenyan poet Jonathan Carriera, the Ugandan writer John Naganda, and Pio Anelvania Zirimu, who met at Makere and later married. In June 1962, the university hosted an event that would prove formative not just for Ngugi personally, but for the future of African literature. The African Writers' Conference was the first organized gathering of writers from across the continent. Ngugi was thrilled to hang out with authors he admired, Chinua Achebe, Wole Soinka, John Pepper Clark, Ezekiel Mfalele, letter Eskia, and to guide the American poet Langston Hughes, who had also been invited, through Kampala. In the evenings, the writers would go out on the town. Describing the conference in the literary journal Transition, Nagenda detailed a night spent listening to a writer read a grisly short story about her grandfather eating his child's liver. Afterwards, everyone headed to Top Life, one of Kampala's most popular clubs, where patrons adhered to a strict dress code. Men in suits or tuxedos, women in evening dresses, and the music was a heightened mix of Congolese rumba or jazz. On the dance floor, the writers waltzed, folks trotted, or moved in time to the rumba. 
Soinka impressed with both his dancing and his guitar skills when he got up to play with the band. During the day, discussions revolved around the great issue of the moment, decolonization, and the place of African literature within this new paradigm. Could the writer address political questions without compromising the artistic impulses? Was there even such a thing as African writing? Or was there only Ugandan writing, Ghanaian writing, South African writing, and so on? From the start, the conference was controversial. This was an attempt to define African literature, yet novelists and poets who had long been working in African languages such as Swahili, Igbo, Zulu, and Amharic were left out. The fiercest criticism of the conference came from the Nigerian critic Obiwali. Writing in Transition in 1963, Wali declared that true African literature could only be written in African languages. In his view, any African literature that was written in colonial languages could only be, at best, a minor branch of European literature. The student of Yoruba, for instance, has no play available to him in that language. For Ole Suinka, the most gifted Nigerian playwright at the moment, does not consider Yoruba suitable, Wali wrote. In the issues of transition that followed, attenders responded. Mfalele argued that English and French could be used as a unifying force against white oppressors. Soinka, a Sabic, wrote, I learn a great deal about my opinions every day, and it was a new revelation that I do not consider Yoruba suitable for any of my plays. But what about Igbo? May I know what Obiwali has done to translate my plays or others into Igbo, or whatever language he professes to speak? Ngugi struggled with Wally's criticism. He had begun working on his third novel, A Grain of Wheat, and would shortly after go to Leeds University on a British Council scholarship to do postgraduate research on the Barbadian writer George Laming. Wally's argument kept on pursuing me through Leeds and after, wrote Ngugi in Decolonizing the Mind. I underwent a crisis. I knew whom I was writing about, but whom was I writing for? Reflecting on the conference today, Ngugi acknowledged its importance for him as a writer, not least because it was the beginning of his close relationship with Achebe, whose novel Things Fall Apart, published in 1958, he greatly admired. Ngugi shared the manuscript for Weep Not Child with him, and Achebe in turn sent it to his publisher in Britain, William Heinemann. The novel became the seventh title in the Vaunted African Writer series, which introduced many international readers to contemporary African writing. Some years later, however, the friendship between Ngugi and Achebe soared as Ngugi shifted towards Wally's position on language. In Decolonizing the Mind, he included Achebe among the African writers he criticized for writing in European languages. Achebe said English was a gift. I disagreed, Ngugi told me. But I wasn't attacking him in a personal way because I admired him as a person and as a writer, what he was doing with his novels. I realized he was angry at me because in the first edition of one of his books, he had quoted me at length, but in the second, he removed me completely. The question of English continues to haunt Ngugi. I can never think of my first novels without thinking of the language issue, he told me. How could I have these African characters and have them all speaking perfect English? When I wrote my first book, I wrote it in a language my mother couldn't access. I rewarded her for taking me to school by writing in a language she can't read or write. His voice went soft. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just wrong about the language issue. He paused. No, I don't think I'm wrong. Voices silent. Faces gone. Later that night, we sat at his dining table in California, reflecting on the writers he studied with at Macare. For you, it must be history he said. For me, this is quite recent. He turned to his laptop on the table in front of him. He googled one right after another. John Nagenda, Peter Nazareth, Jathan Carriera, Pew and Elvania's Vimo, only to find scraps about their lives and work. He shook his head in sadness. So many of his contemporaries forgotten their works out of print. I thought of them in Macari in the 60s, all bright and eager looking trying to be writers. A few weeks earlier, I'd told a friend that no one's story made me sadder than that of Carriera, whose poetry I'd studied at university and who was largely fed into obscurity. Now, 
looking at Tungugi as he scrolled through Wikipedia, I understood that he and I share this grief. K677 The next morning, when I came out from my bedroom, Ngogi was up already. He was seated at the dining table, sheaves of papers around him, his laptop open, on the phone with one of his kids. After that call, he took a call from another of his children, then another, all of the conversations conducting Gikuyu. I served myself breakfast, then joined him at the table. He asked me what else we should discuss for my story. I asked him about Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of independent Kenya. As a boy, Kenyatta had been a hero to Ngugi because of his fight for Gikuyu land rights. After he became president, Kenyatta reneged on his promises. Rather than restoring stolen land to his rightful owners, he and his cronies acquired more for themselves. Kenyatta, Ngugi told me, had merely wanted to replace the colonialists at the top, rather than doing away with the entire colonial structure. To Kenyatta, he said, having black landowners, black police officers, a black government, that was freedom. In 1977, Ngugi published the furious novel Petals of Blood, a clear attack on Kenyatta's government. But it was a different work, the same year, that led to his arrest. The play Ngai Kandenda, I Will Marry When I Want, which Ngugi had co-written, was no more obviously critical of the ruling classes in Kenya than the novel. But there was one crucial difference. As Abul Razak Gruna writes, because the play was written in Gikuyu, it was comprehensible to ordinary citizens and was therefore subversive. In Kamiti Maximum Security Prison, Ngugi was held in a detention block with 18 other political prisoners. In his prison memoir, he writes, Here I have no name. I am just a number in a file. K677. There, on rolls of toilet paper, he began to write his first novel in Kikuyu, Saitani Mutarafaine, Devil on the Cross. The process was extremely difficult because I was breaking away from my dependence on English, Ngugi told the Paris Review in 2022. The main problem I faced in prison was that there was this little devil who used to come to me, a devil dressed in English robes. There is almost no written tradition in Gikuyu, so I'd be struggling away with the vocabulary, somewhat like imperialism, say, and this little devil would come to me and say, Oh, why struggle so hard? I'm right here. There's a slipperiness to the Gikuyu language. I'd write a sentence, read it the following morning, and find that it could mean something else. There was always the temptation to give up. But another voice would talk to me in Kikuyu, telling me to struggle. King of the Castle I was staying with Ngugi for professional purposes. A vulture there to pick over the details of his daily life for my own writing career. But that I am Kenyan and young, and Ngugi is Kenyan and old, meant that in the time I was in his house, I found myself taking on a different role. I became, during the days I spent with him, a sort of roving assistant and, against all my instincts, an amateur home care aide. I became the quick-to-help young person I am with my grandparents. At around 11 o'clock on my second morning in his house, Ngugi had to start getting ready. His home care aide was coming by shortly to drive him to his dialysis appointment. One of the things he hated about his illness was the fact that he couldn't drive himself anywhere anymore. Before leaving, Ngugi handed me the house keys. You're in charge now, he said. I'll see you in a few hours. Now I was alone, the king of the castle. I wandered the corridors of the house, tracing my fingers along the spines of his books. I sat in the living room and played the piano. I walked outside to his back garden. I had taken a book from his library and I sat on a chair, the sun on my face. On a shelf behind the kitchen window were a tin of violets, brown and dying. Other plants in his back garden were flourishing in delightful hues. The simmering pink of the bougainvillea, the lush green of his climbing fig, the bright yellow of his lantanas. A few meters away from the flowers in his garden were some rows of maize. These and the bougainvillea are very common in Kenya and I felt a sudden rush of homesickness standing in this slice of Kenyan California. 
Carnegie Hall. When Gugi came back in the afternoon, I was sitting on the piano, playing. He stood there quietly listening and then decided to play something himself. He had started playing three years earlier because his wife, Njeri, missed the sound of music in the house where the kids abandoned the piano. Reading the sheet music, Gugi played Morning Wood from Griggs, Piaget and Switch. As he played, he kept on making a mistake at the end of the first bar. He tried again and again and again, failing each time, but then it clicked and he played through to the end. Maybe all these people asking when you're getting a Nobel should ask you when you're getting a Grammy. I joked. He turned to me deadpan. What I actually want to do is to play at Carnegie Hall. In the air hung a question I knew I ought to ask, but hesitated to. Because in Kenyan culture, you do not ask people almost 60 years older than you about their marriages. Gugi seemed to sense that an explanation of some kind was needed because he said, unprompted, I know I look like a bachelor, but I'm not. He and his wife were going through a divorce. Before the two of them separated, they lived in University Hills, a part of Irvine where a lot of university faculty stay, near the beach. He'd drive out to look at the Pacific Ocean often. His most recent book, The Perfect Nine, came to him during one of those drives. But then he'd moved out, and now he was bereft of the smell and sight of the ocean that had inspired his writing, living alone, far from the beach, unable to drive. He walked to the dining table, his gait slow and careful. Gugi has made peace with the physical difficulties of growing old, but he has not got used to the memory lapses. Sometimes it frightens me when this happens, he said. And I think, this is it. The odds. Gugi was a rank outsider when you first look at the candidates, but we fear we've got it horribly wrong. Panthers can't get enough of him and we're dreading him being announced the winner. Ladbrook spokesman, October 2010. If this morning sergeant bets is a clue, then Gugi could soon be heading to Stockholm. The Atlantic, September 2013. With just three days to go before the 2014 Nobel Prize for Literature is awarded, Haruki Murakami and the Kenyan writer Nguyiwa Thiongo are joint favorites to win the literary world's greatest honor. The Guardian, October 2014. Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami Formerly the favorite at Ladbrokes, has now been usurped by Kenyan Nguyiwa Thiongo. The Guardian, October 2016. Nguyiwa Thiongo is the favorite to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Again, the Johannesburg Review of Books, October 2017. Nguyiwa Thiongo's failure to win the 2019 Nobel Prize for Literature shocked people. BBC News Pigeon, October 2019. Ngugi, 82, has been tipped to win for a decade. But this yet seems timely for the Kenyan writer whose work chimes with the global focus on black lives, focusing on the struggle against colonialism and its legacy. New York Times, October 2020. Heartbreak for Nguyen Thiongo fans as French author Bugs Literature Nobel Prize. The Daily Nation, October 2022. Stockholm Syndrome. Only the Swedish Academy knows why Ngugi has never been awarded the prize. Perhaps his mistake was not to grow a serious, grand old man of letters beard, unlike the two previous black African winners, Wallace Schoenka, 1986, and Abul Razak Gurna, 2021. Perhaps it was that his writing became too radical and revolutionary. Partly for this reason, Devil on the Cross was rejected by numerous US publishers. One editor at Norton described it as, so passionate in its political convictions and so enamored of the Brechtian political rhetorical devices it uses to display its points that its audience is exclusively those who care about current developments in contemporary African literature or current Marxist thought. Others agree that Ngugi's political commitments have sometimes undermined his writing. The decision to write in Gikuyu exacted a heavy price, the Nigerian critic Adewala Major Pierce has written. The artistry that had earned his English-language novel so much praise was now abandoned in favor of the crudest possible politics. The Ugandan novelist Jennifer Makumbi told me that, while Nguyi was, for her, the go-to when it came to sustained anti-colonial and post-independence dissolutionment literature, she and her peers tended to agree that his plays let him down. They did not rise above propaganda, she said. The morning before the Nobel was awarded in 2022, I called Nguyi and asked him if he was thinking about the prize. He told me he was not. 
that the Nobel Committee was not interested in people who wrote in African languages. When responding to the inevitable Nobel question, Ngugi often suggests it is not of great significance to him, but his son, the novelist Mokoma Ngugi, commented after the 2022 award, the Nobel Literature Prize should in reality be called the Nobel Prize for European Literature and the occasional other friends. The Surgery Ngugi was having surgery in the morning. It was late on my third day with him, and we sat at his dining table. Our conversation on writing derailed, going over the instructions he'd been given to prepare for the operation. Ngugi was very excited about the operation, which promised to simplify the dialysis process and opened up the possibility of him being able to travel back to Kenya for the first time since 2019. As he changed the dressing on the catheter wound on his stomach, I was careful to glance anywhere but at his belly. He said, after tomorrow, no more of this. We went through the list of things he had to do before surgery. Ngugi called his grandson, Miringu, to arrange an early morning pickup. He called his daughter, Ngina, who lives in Georgia. After this, I can come to Atlanta anytime, he told her. In the morning, Ngugi rose very early. After his shower, he struggled to change his dressing, his hands shaking. I stepped in to help. Ngugi's grandson was almost here. It was 5 a.m. As he got ready for the hospital, Ngugi began to sing the old song they sang at Alliance. Watch me, Father, and I shall be white as snow. Underground The surgery went as planned and there was no need to stay at hospital after it was done. At 11 a.m., his grandson wheeled him back into his home. Ngugi wanted to go outside so that he could sit on the patio and feel the sun on his face. But Miringo overruled him. You should lie down and rest, he said. Ngugi agreed to go to his room, but called me in. We need to talk some more, he said. He was in pain. Lying in bed, he called one of his daughters-in-law, who is a doctor. When he put the phone down, his breathing was heavy, and his right hand was on his belly, resting on top of the surgical incision. He asked me to remind him where we had left the conversation the previous day. Then he began to talk about an underground movement he had been part of in Kenya in the 70s. The December 12th movement, DTM, had been formed at a conference of Marxist-Leninists held in Nairobi in 1974. There were strict requirements for joining, with the members instructed to be disciplined. For instance, not being punctual was enough to get you rejected, because it was life and death, Gugi explained. A key part of the DTM remit was intellectual warfare against the state, publishing openly critical literature and distributing anti-government leaflets across the country. Ngugi told me that the play that led to his imprisonment was a DTM project. Both Ngugi and his co-writer were members of a cell based in Limuru. In 1978, when Kenyatta died, he was succeeded by his vice president, Daniel Arap Moi. Despite win popular approval, the new president released Ngugi and other political prisoners, but soon his government became as autocratic as Kenyatta's. In 1982, there was an attempted coup against the government. I asked Ngugi if the DTM was involved. No, he said. DTM believed that politics led the gun, not the gun leading politics. To them, the only valid way of initiating political change was by popular action, not by military action. In the wake of the failed coup, DTM members were nonetheless arrested en masse, while others fled the country. At the time, Ngugi was in London for the launch of Devil on the Cross. He was warned that he would be killed if he returned, and so for the next few years, London became his home. In 1986, he published Matigari, the only novel he would write during this time in England. In the book, an eponymous protagonist organizes against a president who has betrayed the country's dreams, a barely disguised stand-in for Moy. Moy, believing the novel's protagonist to be a real person, ordered the arrest of Matigari. When the president learned the character was fictional, the novel was banned. In 1989, Ngugi moved to the U.S. for a professorship at Yale, marking the start of a stay in American universities which eventually led him to California, where he joined UC Irvine in 2002. That same year, Moe's rule ended, and in 2004, Ngugi visited Kenya for the first time since 1982 to launch his new novel, Murogi Wakagogo, Wizard of the Crow.
Two weeks into his visit, he and his wife were attacked by an armed gang and his wife was raped. It wasn't a simple robbery, Nguya said. It was political. Whether by remnants of the old regime or part of the new state outside the main current, the whole thing was meant to humiliate, if not eliminate us. Yet he continued to return to Kenya in the years that followed. He steadfastly holds on to his citizenship and pays attention to Kenyan politics. As he spoke of DTM and his memories of Kenyan exiles in London, he coughed. Though coughing was extremely painful to him at this moment, and I left him so that he could rest. The language question continued. In the months after I left Mugri's house, having scrubbed from my memory as much of the medical staff as I can, I've been thinking about Mugri's legacy and wondering what it means that, despite the success of decolonizing the mind, its central exhortation, tried creatively in African languages, has remained largely unheeded. Since I wrote Decolonizing the Mind, I've received everything from open hostility to polite expressions of interest, but no real change in practice, he acknowledged in 2017. In conversations with fellow writers, we pondered the language question. One Ghanaian playwright, in despair about the seeming impossibility of abandoning English, pointed out that his language, Dagbani, was spoken by a relatively small group of people in Ghana, and if he wrote in it, he would hardly be read. In any case, the infrastructure to publish in his language did not exist. When I mentioned the example of Ngugi, his rebuttal was swift. Well, Ngugi is Ngugi, he said. You can't compare me to Ngugi. Even Ngugi's own children's literary careers exist largely in English. Four of his children, Tingugi, Ndusu Ngugi, Wanjiku Ngugi, and Mukoma, are novelists, with T living in Kenya and the rest in the US. I asked Ngugi if the message of decolonizing the mind had failed. No, he said. The problem has always been the negative government policies towards African languages and a lack of publishers in African languages. Now I'm thinking back to Ngugi's books. Across many of his novels and his plays, the action revolves around a savior protagonist, whether the educated hero in his early books wants unite society or the radical who wants revolution. What unites these protagonists is the failure of their efforts. They are rejected by the people they seek to save and most of them are killed. For a writer whose radical politics are so evident in his books, he has always seemed pessimistic about the success of his character's quests. The morning I left his house, I had found Googie up already, seated at his table, his laptop open in front of him. He asked me if my cab was here yet. I told him that I'd just ordered it and it was a few minutes away. Do you have everything you need? Yes, I said. Don't forget to write in the loo, he said. I know it's hard at first, but you have to try. My phone beeped. My cab was here. I went to my room, wheeled out my suitcase and put my heavy coat and used these last three days on my shoulder. I opened the door, shook his hand and walked out of the grand old Kenyan man of letters house. Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was Ngugiwa Thiongo, Three Days of the Giant of African Literature, written and read by Kerry Baraka and produced by Nicola Alexandro. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. This episode was engineered by Mark Kiambo. Reporting for this project was supported by a Silvers grant for work in progress from the Robert B. Silvers Foundation. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.